Days of violent protests against rising costs have brought parts of Ecuador to a standstill. The government is now negotiating with indigenous groups leading the demonstrations. But can dialogue curb their anger? And will it help solve the country's economic crisis? I'm your host, Sahil Rahman, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyse and help define major global stories. So let's bring in our guests on this edition of Inside Story in Guayaquil, Ecuador, Adrian Perez Salazar, an attorney and political analyst. In Cuenca, also in Ecuador, Manuela Pica, professor at the Universidad San Francisco de Quito and Amherst College. And in New York, in the US, is Danny Shaw, a professor of Latin American and Caribbean studies at the City University of New York. Welcome to you all on this edition of Inside Story. Manuela, can I just begin with you? Can you just sum up for us and for our viewers across the world in 30 seconds, where are we right now in Ecuador and what's going on? So we're going through a national protest led by the indigenous movement. We're two weeks in now, entering day 15. Um, the, The roots are many, of course, But we can say that the short run, the last two years, we are coming out of a major crisis because of COVID. There has been no governmental support. The hospital system is totally destroyed, dismantled. There's no no medicine in the hospitals. The education system is dismantled. Um, There are many um, problems to get into Mm -hmm. university and there are thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of students who cannot enter. So high unemployment on top of that. We only have 30% of Ecuadorians who actually have a formal job. And, and how much, and on for, how much Manuela, that, can I just pop in there? Contest- if I just jump in there, how, yeah. to sum up, how frustrated is society right now? So all of that leads to a lot of frustration and there is no government response. So the indigenous movement called for a strike, a national strike two weeks ago, and the government, the first day of the strike, has detained, illegally Mm. kidnapped the president of the indigenous movement. So that led to a lot of uh, resentment and even more mobilization. Right. And then after two weeks of protest, the the president of of at least of 10 demands, uh, instead of like sitting to negotiate, really has sent uh, the military onto people. There are many dead and, and people in hospitals. So there is a, an anger that is growing and blossoming among society. And we'll unravel all of that in the next half hour. Let me bring in Adrian Perez-Salazar. I mean, how much of this is about the sort of historical anger within the country of successive government as a successive government not being able to uh, draw on the aspirations of what the public want? And how much of it is about the immediate short-term COVID? We're now uh, seeing a, a war in Ukraine which is impacting globally. There's short-term and long-term issues here. Where do you, uh, Adrian, see the problem uh, being embedded? Thanks for having me. I believe this is most, mostly short-term issues that are happening here. Uh, Mr. Issa, the, the, the leader of the indigenous movement, tried to do a strike a few months ago and it was completely unsuccessful. And that was because a lot of the issues that were happening that are happening now we're not we're not uh, as prominent then so it, we're not this is you know there there is always been a, a lot of issues of uh, economic disparity in, in ecuador of economic inequality lack of access to education and so forth but what is sparking this particular protest right now uh, is is very very concrete 
political and economic circumstances. Uh, economic, uh, were, there is a growing discontent on uh, uh, rising food prices. Yeah. Uh, uh, there is uh, also, there's been also a wave of uh, high crime, which has not been properly controlled by the government. So all, all of these issues have caused that uh, the government, which was very popular a few months ago now, has a 70%, per, uh, I'm sorry, a 70% disapproval rate. Mm -hmm. However, and, and here's where I'm going to disagree with, uh, with Ms. Manu Manuela, is that uh, the, the amount of violence that, that these protests have sparked are completely disproportionate with what the, the public sentiment is. And I'm not, this is not speculation. There has been, uh, there is, uh, uh, a, a poll that had been conducted a couple of days ago. 80% uh, of Ecuadorian people are disagreeing with uh, the strike. 61% of Ecuadorians don't believe that the, 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 the demands are legitimate. And 76% of them disapprove of the tactics used by the, the protesters. Okay. We're talking about tactics that have gone as far as poisoning a a, a, a city water supply. The, the, the city of Ambato, they use motor oil to, and 25% of their portable water now it's poisoned. Okay. They've attacked military convoys. So the, 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 you know, the explanation, at least in my eyes, is that yes, there's been a growing discomfort and a resentment against the government, but this has been channeled for political gain. Okay. And what's a political gain? It's they're trying to overthrow the, the president. Okay, and well, let, let, me bring no, in, no let me bring in Danny Shaw here, because it's easy perhaps to, to see a view a, a little bit further away, Danny, in terms of whether, you know, as uh, Adrian has just mentioned, you know, there is this perhaps feeling that the government needs to go, the president needs to go, uh, and those are the aims of some members of the Senate at the moment, uh, it, politically. Have they just jumped onto um, an opportunity to see the frustration of the indigenous communities, or is it a little bit more complicated than that? This is a class showdown. This is an anti-imperialist showdown. The most vulnerable sectors of the Ecuadorian population are sick and tired of being sick and tired. They're sick of a neoliberal government led by Guillermo Lasso, formerly by Lenin Moreno, that represents an interruption to the citizens' revolution. Uh, a movement led by Rafael Correa that was in power before uh, Lenin Moreno, which paid <clears throat> a great amount of attention to uh, the most vulnerable sectors of the population, the Afro-Ecuadorians, the indigenous population, the working populations. And now we see this neoliberal cabinet, which <clears throat> prefers to serve a foreign debt, a debt to the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, instead of servicing the everyday people. So these alarmingly high gas prices, uh, inflation, violence within the prisons, a, a hike in crime, it's clear that the neoliberal paradigm has failed. And that's why we have hundreds of thousands of Ecuadorians in the streets up against the greatest amounts of repression and the militarization of the country's police force. OK, well, Adrian's disagreeing with you, but I want to just quickly go back to uh, Manuela, because I, I, part of the issues, and we'll deal with them one at a time, one of them is about fuel. Um, Ecuador itself is an oil-producing country. Uh, some 8.27 million barrels of crude were produced, um, uh, and therefore there is the revenue for the government to improve life for Ecuadorians. One of the... Um, uh, demands of the indigenous communities is to stop drilling and to stop producing oil on indigenous land. If you don't have the revenue, how do you improve people's lives? Because you need money for it, don't you, Manuela? 
it's been 50 years that Ecuador exports oil and there has been no benefit for communities. But the, the demand is not to stop oil. It's to stop the expansion of the oil frontier and in particular to, ex to stop the expansion of the mining frontier on water sources in the mountains. The problem of drilling in Ecuador or mining in Ecuador is that there is never community consultation, prior and informed consent from the communities, which is in the law in Ecuador, it's in international law, and the government gives concession illegally without uh, uh, having the consent of the community. So that's a major problem. And Ecuador is a dollarized economy. And Ecuadorians are migrating to the US. The um, remittances have increased 30% last year to try to get money for their families. Meanwhile, the president of Ecuador, who's a banker, is involved in the Pandora Papers, right? And has been evading money to fiscal paradises in the US, to the Dakotas, to Florida, and taking the money away from the countries that people are migrating, taking risks, dying on the way, migrating illegally to send money back in, dollars back in, because we do not produce our own money. So there is an inequality of the poor trying to make money and the rich taking the money away from the country. Uh, Adrian, it's, it's not it's, about uh, it, mining. Uh, well, I think partly, I think some people might say it is about mining slightly, because, uh, Danny, wouldn't you agree that, that, that neighbouring countries like Peru are having the same problem as many other countries across the world, are rising gas prices, there are protests about uh, inflation, you know, f food is, or certainly uh, the, the grain that uh, the world produces in Europe isn't getting to the right markets as such. Is it, is it about oil? Is it about food and fuel? Do, are you not experiencing a, as a country the same things that other countries are facing right now? What makes Ecuador so different? Ecuador has a long history of mobilization against inequality. From 1999 to 2005, we saw the Ecuadorian people topple uh, three presidents. Uh, we see massive changes in the region. We see the first leftist uh, president in neighboring Colombia. Uh, we see new dialogues with the Venezuelan government about getting their oil onto the international market, particularly from France and Emmanuel Macron. We've seen uh, strong anti-imperialist movements in power now in Bolivia, in Nicaragua. Uh, we saw the summit of the Americas failure in Los Angeles a few weeks ago. And it's clear that the Ecuadorian people are clamoring for more unity, more integration, uh, more subsidies, more social benefits. And the government of Guillermo Lasso in this uh, bancocracia or this uh, bankocracy, as they say in Ecuador, is moving further and further towards austerity programs and structural adjustment programs, which is against the will of the uh, masses of people in the streets of Ecuador. Uh, Adrian, can I bring you in here about uh, about the sort of the inequalities between those that live in the country and those that live in urban areas in the city? Is there not also a, a, a racial divide? Those the indigenous communities in the country who are seen as those that have to provide for those in the urban areas, uh, and and you've, there have been uprisings yes. before, haven't they, in the 1990s and what 1994 as well, that's highlighted the inequalities that indigenous communities feel. There are very, very prominent structural issues in Ecuador of inequality and a lack of access to, to opportunities. That's not being debated here. That's, that's a problem that's very real. The issue is that to try to explain what's happening right now only by appealing to those factors is akin to trying to explain a plane crash by appealing to gravity. You know, these issues have been here all along. 
the question is what's happening right now? What, what, are the, the, what is the intention of these particular actors at this moment? What are they trying to do? And what I, what I believe, and I, I strongly disagree with some of, of, of the, the things that are being said. There, there has not been a huge hike in, in fuel prices. Quite the opposite. You know, I'm going to put some context here, some, some actual numbers. Uh, in, in Ecuador, we only have three brands of fuel. It's called Eco País, Extra, and Super. Uh, the two, the two, uh, the first that I mentioned have lower octanage, and the, the third one is a high octanage. It's a better quality for you know better, better, uh, higher quality vehicles. And the the first two, uh, the price has been completely frozen. There has been no increase in fuel prices in these two, and it's only in the third one, which is only consumed by the urban elites, that there's been there's been an increase in prices. So it's completely ludicrous. It's completely absurd to believe that this is caused by. Well, as it's been said right now, that by higher fuel prices. Well, you, you, uh, you, you have know, the fuel prices as one issue, but then you, that in itself has an impact on food prices when you're trying to move 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 food around the country or bring it in. Manuela, you're sort of shaking your head. Just just come in and on that chat. Yeah, I just want to clarify maybe for the audience. Ecuador is a country where indigenous slavery was legal until 1964. 1964, indigenous peoples were legally freed uh, from slavery. They were sold with the land until then. So, of course, there's structural problems from before. But when you have a neoliberal president, right, who's governing for the 1%, who has all his millions of dollars, billions, involved in the Pandora Papers, and who's not listening to the population, who has problems with the increase of price, not accessing university, not accessing health, and then there is a 10-point list. So it's not just fuel. It's not just food. It is, and it is a global problem since the war in Ukraine. But there are eight other points beyond fuel and food that have to be taken into account. And the rights of nature and the right to clean water are other points that we need to talk about. Ecuador is a milestone globally for establishing the rights of nature, of nature constitutionally, legally, and many other countries have followed. Since 2008, we've been expanding the rights of nature. And here we have a government who promises to develop the nation by doubling oil drilling in the Amazon. That is not the solution. We are all trying to protect the Amazon, to protect the future of the planet. And he wants to double oil drilling in the Amazon without indigenous consent. OK, so, Adrian, where, where does this then lead or what options does the president have right now? Because obviously there's a great deal of anger on the streets. OK, I, I just want to very quickly respond to a point made by Manuela. Yeah, OK, if, if the if environment is such a big concern, then it makes no sense to increase fuel subsidies. Fuel subsidies are, by definition, bad for the environment. They, they increase the, the consumption of fuel and they increase global warming. And uh, it, you know, it, the the issue with the fuel subsidies is that they are disproportionate favor. They they, they disproportionately favor the top fifteen percent of Ecuadorians, which which are the the wealthy urban elites. It makes no sense if, if you try to solve these economic disparities. If you're trying to solve uh, environmental problems, there is no sense in insisting in higher fuel subsidies. The only reason why fuel subsidies have become this railing flag is because they know that they're incredibly hard to sustain. Um, and I'm going to give you some hard numbers right now. Uh, with the, the new increase, with, with the increase on international fuel prices right now, uh, the Ecuadorian uh, government needs to spend over $3 billion 
in subsidies, which is equivalent, it's almost equivalent to what they have to spend for the healthcare system, which is $3.16 billion. It's almost what they need to spend for to keep the security or, or, or armed forces and, and police, which is $3.3 billion. So it's, it's a completely unreasonable demand. If Mr. Issa and, and the indigenous leaders were, very, were that concerned about the, the, the welfare of, of their communities, they, what they would ask is an end of fuel subsidies, which benefit the urban yeah. elites, and they will readily direct that money to other issues such as education, such as security, such as, for example, better, uh, better uh, uh, subsidies for, for uh, agricultural products, for, for, for agricultural inputs. Okay. So it, it's, to me, it's, it's very clear what's happening here. Okay. This, uh, Sorry, Adrian, let me, I've, got, I've got to jump in because I want to get Danny in here because obviously, Danny, you know, we can talk about oil, we can talk about the economy, but we also we need to talk about the role literally of the indigenous community from, from your perspective because they have, since 1964, been able to assert themselves in a way that very few communities and uh, minority groups in other countries around the world have been able to, as a collective group, negotiate, make the government sit and talk to them. That has taken time. Where do you think the negotiations are right now in terms of the way they're talking to each other? Leonidas Issa and the Konai said last night they'll be back in the streets today. They've continued to call for uh, peaceful civil disobedience across the, the country. Um, <clears throat> overwhelmingly, the repression has come from the government side. Uh, we've seen five protesters killed uh, so far. Um, <clears throat> we've seen how many hundreds and hundreds of protesters uh, openly uh, wounded, uh, injured, uh, imprisoned. So uh, there's an informational war right now going on in Ecuador and throughout the uh, world, really. They're trying to pin all the violence on the protest movement. They're trying to give carte blanche to the state security forces to continue to carry out this repression. And I think we have to keep coming back to the wider geopolitical significance of Ecuador. The Citizens' Revolution said that the U.S. military would no longer have uh, bases in Manta, in Ecuador. Now with Guillermo Lasso, uh, there's talk of uh, a Galapagos Island uh, U.S. military base. So there's a lot at stake here beyond just the bread and butter issues we've been discussing. Do you think the, uh, the, the recent uh, meeting uh, of the Americas in uh, L.A. was formative or certainly positive in terms of uh, moving Ecuador's aims forward in what, the, in what the president wants for the country? Well, Guillermo Lasso is very isolated in Los Angeles. Uh, most of the Americas and dozens of nations from the Caribbean boycotted this quote-unquote summit of exclusion or the summit of the Americas, as they tried to call it. And I think this was a great uh, failure. So Guillermo Lasso is more and more isolated. There's very few right-wing U.S.-leaning presidents left in the region. And even Guillermo Lasso is opened up to the Chinese because he understands as well that the future is increasingly multipolar and not a unipolar world dominated by the U.S. OK, I'm going to give the last word to Manuela as we come to the end of our programme. Manuela, uh, never enough time in the day, really, for this sort of a programme. The debate is, is so long and expansive. But in terms of where you see the next few days going, um, how do you see any sort of negotiation happening between Indigenous communities and the government? Or are we set for weeks or months of civil unrest? <clears throat> it's very tricky to see the end of it. It's the longest indigenous surprise that I have witnessed in 25 years in Ecuador. Um, the president 
has accepted to dialogue with the indigenous movement, but he did not show up. He sent his ministers and we're seeing very little progress in the official dialogue that started last night. There is increasingly protest. There are more protests yesterday than any other day in the rest of the country. It's a very diffused protest and increasingly un uncontrollable. So I foresee this could last, even though people are getting tired and mm -hmm. people need to work and the price of food has skyrocketed because of the protests. I, I foresee many more uh, confrontations before we see a solution. Well, there, unfortunately, we have to leave uh, the conversation that we're having. I'd like to thank all of my guests, Adrian Salazar, Manuel Peak, Manuela Peak, and Danny Shaw, uh, for joining us on this edition of Inside Story. Thank you very much. And that's it for this Inside Story podcast. This episode was produced by Shabina Khan, Usama Aloni, Abbas Azim, Abdurrahman Wasame, and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Aston Goodison. And the programme was edited by Leroy Messina, Lynn Enwin and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening and we'll be back again on Wednesday. Hi everyone, it's Malika Bilal with The Take. This week on the podcast, we'll get deep into Ukrainian grain and what's stopping it from making its way to the world. Listen to the episode wherever you get your podcasts.